and welcome to the lecture podcast for English 102. This podcast covers the material for week 14, where we'll be revisiting summary, paraphrase, and quotation. As always, you can find the lecture slide PDFs that accompany this lecture in your Canvas module. This week, we're going to revisit some really essential ways to work with outside sources in your own writing. That is, in particular, we're going to talk about the way that you use those materials in your own writing uh, and how you give credit for them. So we're going to talk about summary, paraphrase, and quotation. And these concepts are probably familiar to many of you. Uh, that's okay. It's good to revisit things from time to time just to make sure that uh, you're as current as you need to be especially at the end of the semester or toward the end of the semester when there's a bunch of other stuff going on. It's a helpful place to take a step back and to revisit some of the, I want to say classics, we'll go with classics, some, some of the foundational skills about uh, writing using other sources. So that's what we're going to do today. You're also for this week reading the essay, uh, Blue Collar Brilliance by Mike Rose, and you'll be using that essay and the material from this lecture in your participation assignment. So we'll just jump right in, summary, paraphrase, and quotation. Uh, we're going to start by revisiting the distinction between summary and analysis, which are both useful ways to interact with a text and both serve really different purposes. So you want to make sure that you're using each where it needs to be used. A lot of the time uh, in academic works for the social sciences and humanities, you'll be asked to do both things in different places. And I believe this is true in the sciences as well, uh, because again, they serve different roles. So you want to make sure that you can distinguish between the two and that you use each where it is appropriate. So when we summarize a text, we capture its main points. A summary is a description of a thing rather than a breaking it down, taking it apart, thinking about and evaluating how it works. That's analysis. When we analyze a text, we consider how it's been put together. Uh, we sort of dissect it and critique it. Our own opinions become part of our textual analysis. But as we know, in order to be useful, and to be constructive, to be valid, these opinions have to be rooted in the material of the text. They have to come from what we're analyzing. So a very common paper critique that you'll see from uh, professors in the humanities is often something like summary in place of analysis. And that's because often uh, when you're asked to do one, it will be tempting to do the other. So make sure as you're looking at assignments that you understand the distinction. When we summarize something, we're encapsulating it. We're describing what it is. Uh, this can also be sort of with works of fiction. If you tell someone what happens in the plot, that is plot summary. Um, Summary is useful for research uh, when you're trying to share with a reader what your source covers uh, and what it says. Analysis is useful for exactly that, for understanding how something works and evaluating it. So both have their role, but you want to be really careful to understand which one you're using and why. Chances are, 
You may be a little sick of the idea of analysis since we put so much focus on it over the course of the semester. There are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, analysis is a bedrock of uh, what you do in, in academic studies, so you'll see it again, uh, again and again. It's also a key component of sort of a critical thinking, a, a mental platform of critical thinking, in that when you evaluate something, you are understanding it uh, on a sort of level that implies, judgment is perhaps a bit harsh, but uh, understanding of strengths, weaknesses, uh, purpose. Summary is more topical. It doesn't ask you to critique anything just to be able to describe it. Now, that description also involves a level of understanding. You can't summarize something if you don't understand it. So let's go back to summary. Generally speaking, when you write an academic summary, whoever you're writing the summary for is going to expect some key elements to be in your summary. So I have on slide four for you here a list of those elements. Summary identifies or names the piece and its author, states the main purpose of the text, the thesis, the point. It also captures the text's main ideas, but it's short. The idea of a summary is to boil down or condense a text into a few sentences, a paragraph. Uh, it does not include the reader's feelings, beliefs, counterarguments, etc. That's analysis. There's a place for that. But if you're doing a summary, your opinions uh, and, and sort of evaluations don't go in that. The point of a summary is to provide a, a condensed, excuse me, condensed but accurate overview of what a source is, what it's arguing, what it's saying. A good summary covers all of the things listed on slide five. It covers the topic, what the text is about in order to uh, ascertain this. If you're reading something that you're going to summarize, uh, find and mark the main ideas as you're reading. Sometimes an author will tell you explicitly what their argument is, what they want you to do with that information. That would be explicit. Sometimes they only imply it. Sometimes they sort of seem to be nudging you toward a particular conclusion with the information that's being provided, in which case you have to kind of backwards engineer what it is they might want you to do with that information. You also want to think about the angle uh, of the particular text that you're summarizing. What is the author's position on the topic? What kinds of appeals does the writer use to connect with the audience? Uh, do they rely on logic? Do they appeal to readers' emotions? Are they trying to establish common ground? Uh, do they demonstrate their credibility on the topic in a convincing way? You also want to think about evidence. What kinds of examples or information does the author offer to prove his or her claims? And evidence Examples uh, can cover a broad range of possibilities. You can think about whether the evidence is based in pathos or logos or both. Uh, so pathos is emotionally rooted. It appeals to uh, a kind of interpersonal or emotional connection. So uh, anecdotal evidence, stories from childhood, uh, examples of relatives or friends or people you knew, that's pathos-based evidence. Logos, on the other hand, logic is more about uh, data, evidence. Uh, well, it's all evidence, data-driven evidence, I should say. So uh, statistics, um, uh, studies, uh, information that is sort of more quantifiable, less personally rooted. Uh, the best 
there are, you will find times when you want to use one or the other. But generally speaking, the most persuasive texts use some combination of both pathos and logos. Now, sometimes they use one more persuasively than another. Other times uh, it is a kind of even blend. Other times they rely solely or ex almost solely on one or the other. And each of those choices has very different effects. The example for this that I always use um, in the difference between pathos and logos-based evidence is, as many of you know, because I never shut up about it, I am from California. Uh, I grew up there. I learned to drive there. I have very Californian understandings about how the driving experience should work. So when I moved to the East Coast, it was sort of flabbergasted by the driving experience. And so if I were to give you a pathos-based argument about what it is to drive in the state of Virginia, it would be full of extremely ranty claims about why is it that like the fast lane is not the fast lane? What is the whole like, are you guys allergic to turn signals? That is, I can tell you, so I can tell you stories of what my driving experience has been like. I can tell you about the time I got stuck behind three trucks that were exactly in line on a three lane highway for no particular reason. That's an example of pathos-based evidence. And usually when I tell the story, I'm trying to make the argument that drivers in my home state are better drivers than uh, the drivers I interact with here. Again, pathos-based, right? My stories are my stories. They're anecdotal evidence. However, if I wanted to make a compelling argument for the idea that California drivers are somehow better than Virginia drivers, my stories would only go so far, right? This is just one disgruntled Californian's experience. So in order to compellingly make that argument, I would want to buttress my stories, which are emotionally appealing and, and might, uh, might either reach or alienate my reader, depending on their own perspective, I would need logos-based evidence. I would need some kind of statistic, some kind of fact to back up my assertions. So this is, and this is where my pathos-based uh, argument kind of hits a snag because the truth is that Virginia drivers actually have higher safety ratings than California drivers. So uh, when I went to Geico's database of uh, accidents, uh, what other road safety statistics, uh, I found that actually Virginians rank fairly highly on the sort of state sliding scale of safe drivers. Californians do not. So uh, as much as I like to rant and rave about the experience of driving in Virginia, it turns out that the evidence, the logos-based evidence, is not really on my side, which is a good indicator that the kind of argument that I wanted to make based on my own anecdotal personal experience doesn't really hold up uh, with the support of evidence, facts, uh, and sort of a broader range of data. Now, the reason that I'm giving you guys this example is because I think it's really interesting and important to think about the different roles that each of these types of evidence play. Pathos are, is easy to relate to. If done right, uh, a, a pathos-based story really draws readers in, it, it garners their sympathy also has the potential to alienate them, but uh, it's easier to connect with a story or an individual than it is with a spreadsheet. That said, if you don't have the backup from the, the data, from the facts, you really shouldn't be making that kind of argument, at least not in an academic context. So 
all of this, if we're going to tie it back to the idea of summary, means that when you summarize, you want to be able to give your reader in that very condensed space an overview of the topic, what the text is about, the angle, the author's position on the text. So you can think about topic and angle as adding up to the thesis. This is what the author is talking about. This is what they seem to want you to do with this information. This is the angle that they're coming from. You also want to be able to give in your summary an overview of the types of evidence. So does the author use lots of personal stories? Does he use data? Does he use a kind of lens? Like, is he writing this from the perspective of the psychologist? Is she writing this from the perspective of a college student? What is the, uh, that what kinds of evidence and what sort of, um, expertise or experience is being drawn upon in order to substance to give substance to the claim. So that's a summary. Paraphrase is similar to summary in that it's meant to encapsulate the material uh, of the source in your own words, uh, but it is, if summary is about boiling down a larger text into a smaller encapsulation, paraphrase is a one-on-one conversion. So it's just putting a particular idea into your own words. Uh, Paraphrase stay approximately the same length as the original source material. Uh, So you can think about summary as the main points in a compact form. Paraphrase is the same content in your own words. The reason that you paraphrase is twofold. Uh, one, it helps you, the reader, the so the reader writer, the person reading the source and translating that information to your own reader. If you can put something into your own words, it means that you understand it. It's also helpful uh, because if you put something into your own words, you give it your own emphasis. You can tie it more easily to your own ideas. That said, a paraphrase needs to be faithful to the content that it's paraphrasing. So a paraphrase, revisit, um, like a, here's a list on slide eight, uh, is your own words, is not condensed, av- condensed, avoids personal opinion, again, still responsible for the material of the source, and is completely rephrased from the original. And you paraphrase when the information is important uh, and the form, the way that the information is presented is not as important. So you paraphrase when what you want to get across is the content of your source. You quote uh, when you want to preserve both form and content, that is what something is saying and how it's being said. So quotation uses the exact language from the source. We quote, this is a list on slide 10, to retain the powerful, specialized, or unique language of the original text. We do it to demonstrate authority or to present an opposing view. So we use quotations, again, when the form, uh, the way something is said, matters as much as the content. So that would be the powerful, specialized, or unique language. Uh, We quote when we want to demonstrate authority, that is when we are using the authority of the source, Uh, You want to do that sparingly and you want to make sure that the um, source has the kind of clout to back that up. And we also do it when we want to preserve to present an opposing view. So you can include a quotation and then sort of rebut or argue against it. And that gives the argument the sort of weight of someone else's words before you are able to take it on with your own. When you quote you don't just want to leave 
the quotation to speak for itself. There's actually quite a complicated, complicated might not be the right word, there's quite an extensive, there we go, an extensive framework of setup and follow-up that you need to do in order to quote effectively for an academic uh, essay. You need to introduce the quote, you need to deliver the quote, you need to connect the quote, and you need to cite the quote. And you need to do this for every single quotation. So what do I mean by introduce the quote? Slide 12, I'll give you an example. When you introduce a quotation, you introduce the author and the original text, potentially the context, uh, just like you would for summary or paraphrase, just make sure that your reader understands who's saying it uh, and where it comes from. So usually this is like an introductory phrase, um, like the example, according to Amelia Smith, comma, a, research, a researcher affiliated with Harvard, comma, and then you would insert the quote. So you have the author, the author's background, and then the quoted material. So you have the person and the relevance and the sort of credibility in the quote. Does it have to follow that framework every single time? No, of course it doesn't. That's not the only template, but that is the kind of relevant information that you need to give your readers. Don't just stick a quote into the middle of your paragraph, the beginning of your paragraph, wherever you're putting it, and expect your reader to understand why they should give that quote weight or interest. You need to make it clear uh, why readers should pay attention to that quotation where it comes from. Again, once more with feeling, do not use a quotation as a standalone sentence. Quotes always need some form of introduction. Never leave a quote to stand by itself. Don't start a paragraph with an unintroduced quotation. Don't use any kind of unintroduced quotation at any point in your writing. If you quote something, you're responsible for it, which means you need to introduce it. You need to tie it to your argument. Going on, deliver the quote. To slide 14. This is no doubt something everyone is already familiar with, but just to reiterate, direct quotations need to have quotation marks around them. The quotation marks start with the first word of quoted material. They end just after the last word of quoted material. Once you've introduced and delivered the quotation, you need to connect that information to your own topic and point. So what is the quoted material doing in your essay? Here it is, here's who said it, all very interesting. Why does it matter? What about your argument does it reinforce or challenge or whatever? Why is it there? Don't expect your reader to understand that implicitly. Don't expect them to assume. You need to spell it out for them. You also need to cite the quotation just as you do for summary or paraphrase. Now, depending on the citation style, You'll either use a parenthetical citation, citation within the body of the text, or a footnote. Uh, using MLA, as you do in this class, a parenthetical citation is what you want to do. So author's last name in parentheses at the end of the sentence that contains quoted, paraphrased, or summarized material. Slide 17, I've given you guys an example of the process of introduction, quoting, connecting, and citing. Uh, it is color-coded, so you can see each element here. Here we go. Introduction. One article re published recently in The Atlantic. Context. This is what it is. This is where it comes from. Addresses the problem of access directly. Connection. This is how it works with my argument, with the argument being read 
or excuse me, the argument being made in this paragraph. In this case, the connection comes before the quotation. That's fine. It can come before or after. It just needs to be there. So introduction, one article published recently in The Atlantic, connection addresses the problem of access directly, stating, okay, in pink, in very, very bright pink, sorry about that, uh, the quotation, because not everyone who wants the experience actually gets the experience, these works, even if their intentions and messages are democratic, tend to become exclusive affairs. Okay, that's the quote. You can see the quotation marks. And then the citation. This is a parenthetical citation in keeping with MLA. Boxer, there we go. So you need to have all of these elements for every source that you quote. If you don't have these elements, then you're not using quoted material correctly. Slide 18 here. I have for you a graphic from an open source textbook about when you want to quote, paraphrase, or summarize. Quote, for the reasons we discussed, you paraphrase when you want to maintain your own voice while sharing important points, and you summarize when you need to relay the main ideas of someone's writing. To talk now a little bit about the article that I'm asking you guys to read for this week, which is Mike Rose's Blue Collar Brilliance. I'm not going to actually discuss the substance of the article because part of your participation assignment for this week is really about figuring out what the article is about. So I'm going to ask you to summarize it. I'm going to ask you to talk about its content. I'm going to ask you to think about it. Uh, what I do want to highlight without discussing the content too much, is one of the features of this article, of this essay, which is also uh, a feature of a lot of essays, a lot of articles, especially in an academic context, and that's jargon. So jargon is language abbreviations or terms that are used by specific groups, uh, typically groups involving like a profession, like the medical profession, uh, any kind of the computer science, whatever it is, uh, a field or a profession, an area of specialization. So jargon within that group makes the conversation simpler. It's a shared language, a shared set of terms, ideas, concepts, uh, and it works within that group because everyone in the group knows it, is trained in it, it has experience with that kind of language. The drawback of using jargon when writing uh, is that if your reader doesn't know what those terms mean, they're on the outside looking in. You'll sort of lose them. So I'll give you an example here on slide 21. I'm not even going to try reading this out loud. I know you guys are all looking at it now. If you're not, look at it now. Uh, but take a look at this and ask yourself, do I know what this says? Can I take even a guess as to what kind of jargon this is? What this, what kind, who would understand uh, easily the breakdown of, uh, of language and ideas here? So take a second, think about that. On slide 22, you have the sort of uh, layman's translation. So you have the jargon on the left, on the right, you have the translation for those of us who are not medical professionals. Uh, those who have cold symptoms might consider visiting their primary care provider, PCP, SX symptoms, uh, URI, don't know what, this should happen quickly if there is a fever over 101, swollen glands of the neck, 
green or yellow drainage from the nose, or inflamed swollen tonsils. Treatment may include antibiotics, aspirin fluids, and medication designed to loosen phlegm and make it easier to cough. Uh, all very good and informative, right? And you can see there, there's, there's a lot of jargon. The medical jargon in this example um, is designed for medical professionals to be able to get all this information more quickly. However, if you're on the outside looking in, uh, this means that what we'd have to do a lot of research, right? We'd be Googling URI, we'd be Googling PCP, uh, pyrexia, cervical nodes, purulinaires, tonsillar hypertrophy, right? We could find that information, especially since we live in the wonderful 21st century world of Google. So there would be, uh, but it would take us extra steps. We would need to do that extra research. Don't worry, Rose's article is not that jargon intensive, but he does use some words and phrases that come from the sort of a, a sort of specialized language, a sort of jargon rich. I want you to, I want to see if you guys can find these, these find these words, and what you will do with them. Um, so what kind of significance you have, what kind of what kind of significance you would attach to them, what kind of field you think they come from and what they sort of add to the argument. Why use uh, jargon in an essay like this one? How does it connect to the kind of argument that the author is trying to make? All right, you guys, that's going to do it for us today. I know everyone's very sad, but yes, we're all out of lecture content. Please enjoy the essay. Please let me know if you have any questions about the participation assignment or about anything else. As always, you can reach me through the Canvas inbox or through my RBC email address. Happy reading.